0: Thank you for downloading the sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, our sermon text. This morning is John chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. I'm going to start at 14 and read through 18. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your word. We thank You that You have given us this inspired work, Lord, and that we can know you truly, we can know know you as you have revealed yourself. And so, Father, as we come to this passage, we pray that you would give us your spirit who would illumine this word to us and help us to understand, and as we understand it, Father, that I I pray that it would would, um, help us to live our lives by faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Again, in the Gospel of John, we have to deal with theology that is much greater than our finite minds can can understand. Uh, we, can, we can try to wrap our heads around these things, but um, we're not wrapping uh, our whole heads around the whole thing. Um, these, these, are, um, these are mysteries, uh, many of them that have been revealed to us. And so, with verse 18, uh, verse 18 marks the conclusion of what most commentators think of as the prologue to the book of, of John and so the apostle John's point throughout the prologue has been to teach us that Jesus Christ was God who became flesh and lived among us for some 33 years and he's sort of rolling over just the the utter grandeur of of that reality in his head and he's setting up for what comes later in the book with these first first 18 verses. Now, if if the contemplation of, you know, God becoming flesh does not um, make goosebumps at some point raise up on your arms, you may still be blind and deaf and dead in your sins. The Son of God, God himself, became flesh and dwelt among us. He, he got dirt under his fingernails, right? He walked along those paths around Israel and Palestine, right? He, he talked with people. People saw him. He ate. He worked. He did all those things. And yet he was the, the pre-existing eternal God. The Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us, rescuing us. And, and, and then you contemplate that He came to rescue us from our disastrous predicament. Right? Our utter inability to do anything that pleases the God who created us. Our utter inability to do that which would lead us to be able to be in His presence without His anger consuming us. Jesus came to work out that problem. And we're just we're just dust. We are just tiny little created animated dust clouds. That's what, that's what we are. Now, the John mentioned in verse 15, which is where we're picking up, is, is John the Baptist, that forerunner of the Lord that was also mentioned back in verses 6 through 8 one of the main messages of John the Baptist was that he was not the Christ. right? He was not the Christ because Christ was much greater than him in every respect. In fact, John often, and with ease, points out that Jesus Christ was of a higher rank than him as we see in verse 15 and then we see later even in the first chapter. Jesus Christ I mean, think of the contrast. It's it's the contrast between the infinite and the cloud of dust, right? Jesus Christ was, was with God and was God eternally. John was a created being, a mere man. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, is light. John was not the light, but came to testify about that light. Jesus Christ made the world. John was made. Jesus Christ's glory was seen by a few apostles at that transfiguration, and he was full of grace and truth. John was a sinner, though a prophet, right? He, any light he had was by uh, a derivative, right? It came from, from Jesus. Through the Spirit's work in his own heart and mind, John the Baptist knew enough about Jesus to put aside any, you know, petty jealousies, right? Any petty jealousies that that he might have in his heart as people followed Jesus. From the start, he announced to the world that Jesus had a higher rank than him because as verse 15 says, he existed before John. Right, if we were just thinking of this in terms of their their births as babies, this is not a true statement. Right? John the Baptist was born some six months prior to Jesus. Quite obviously, as this prologue has pointed out throughout, the, the, the point is the preexistence, right? The preexistence of the Son of God, his having existed eternally with the Father and with the Holy Spirit is again stated here. Now, our faith hinges on this reality, on Christ's preexistence, right? If Jesus was a man, just a man, the the dead are not raised and we are without hope. But by the Spirit's work in our hearts, right, causing us to believe what is written in his word, we believe and we live by faith. Jesus was and Jesus existed and always had before John was even conceived, right? John had a start, Jesus did not. How foolish it would have been for John the Baptist then to assert some sort of rank over Jesus because, of their birth order, right? How absurd that would be, seniority, right? It would have been to assert he was, I mean, essentially, if he had ever done that, it would have been to assert that he was an atheist and an unbeliever, right? He would have been denying Jesus being God. It would have been to reject his role, John's role as the forerunner, and try to steal that spotlight from Jesus, It would have been to reject the station of life that that God gave to John. In a a word, it would have been arrogance, right, for John to to assert his superiority. Accepting our station in life is hard for proud beings to do, right? We We covet somebody else's influence. We covet all the time. We covet influence. We covet wealth. We covet possessions, and we scheme ways that we can thereby um, assert our superiority over others. Right? If I can't beat this dude in the wealth category, I'll make sure the men's group knows I have read more books than him. He might be rich, but I'm smart. Right? In the case of John the Baptist, it would have been the height of arrogance if he had considered usurping Jesus' position, knowing what he knew of Jesus' stature. But the pride of man knows no bounds. Right? And undoubtedly, John struggled with wanting to view Jesus as his little cousin. right? Just his little cousin. Only the Spirit's sanctification, only by that, would he have been able to overcome that pride of his heart. We all think we should be in our boss's position, but the sanctified man realizes and accepts that he is not in his boss's position. But And that's by God's doing. Now, there are three main doctrines that we can pull out of verses 16 through 18. First, we read this, For of His fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. Now, what do we learn from that phrase? We learn that any spiritual good that we have, we have received. Any spiritual good that we have, we have received it from Jesus Christ. In Colossians we read, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus. And a little bit later in Colossians, we read, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. Laid up in Christ are all, all, all bits of, of, of everything right, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The very fullness of God dwells in Him. To search for wisdom and knowledge, for truth and grace, and some other source then is to make a, you know, is to mistake a sewer for the fountainhead of a spring of fresh water, right? If we go to any other source, we're making a terrible mistake in trying to find wisdom, knowledge, spiritual truth there. Jesus is the one singular source of grace. All other supposed sources of grace are counterfeits that will leave the searcher without grace. Uh, he may be deluded in thinking those other places grant him grace, but he will be, leave without grace. Uh, the, the not so Hollywood halls of our academic institutions will claim to be the source of enlightenment right, and knowledge and wisdom, and they may offer a few true observations about the world, but what they can never supply is grace. And grace is what is needed, right? That's what they can't ever supply. Facts, knowledge, wisdom in the form of facts, right, but not grace. The knowledge of man is so fickle right, so changing, so um, subjective, that all of academia could be described as the search for atonement apart from grace. That's what it is. Think about it. Our culture cares deeply about justice and righteousness. They say they, they are deeply concerned about justice and righteousness, but they have defined justice and righteousness in such a way that one must work, 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 work to atone. Right? One must be woke. Right? One must be woke, repenting of things that are not sins like skin pigmentation. That's hard work. That is insanely hard work to repent of that. One must... Um, Corporations, right, are training their employees to be less white, for example, Um, Coca-Cola. And then conversely, right, Planned Parenthood is training their clients to be less black, right? And so get to work becoming, in other words, no matter how hard you must work, Get to work becoming in order to atone for your sins or for your ancestors' sins and your hapless retention of your ancestors' sins, right? There's no grace in this scheme. There's just no grace in the scheme. It's all works. It's, and the, the end of it really is just self-immolation right, you know what immolation means, self-immolation, you may as well just set yourself on fire and die, because you will not be able to overcome the standard of justice and righteousness that people have set, because it's not a standard of righteousness and justice. There's no grace, right, and grace is the acknowledgement that you're a wretched sinner, that you could not possibly atone for your sins, and yet God gives you forgiveness of sins when you put your trust in him by faith, right? In other words, fallen man thinks he can atone for himself apart from God. Such is the foolishness of every form of religion outside of biblical religion, right? The the Word of God teaches us that it is much harder for man to be atoned even than the impossibilities we just read about. In fact, the the, the God-man must die. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, must die to atone for the sins of the world. Man is utterly unable to gain for himself spiritual blessings outside of Christ. He alone, Christ alone, can provide for our deficiency. In fact, there there is no happiness, there is no rest, there is no earthly comfort, only self-annihilation outside of Jesus Christ. The Father has ordered it that way because He loves His Son and His Son will have all the glory. Calvin writes, we shall find angels and men to be dry heaven to be empty, the earth to be unproductive, and in short, all things to be of no value if we wish to be partakers of the gift of God in any other way than through Christ. Everything just gets sucked of its value, right? Outside of Jesus Christ and the grace of Jesus Christ and the atonement of Jesus Christ, and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Everything else is just sucked of its power, and yet that's what people, that's the mountain everybody tries to climb. Christ is an inexhaustible fountain of grace, and yet we seek for grace where it cannot be found, in repetitive prayers and feats of strength. In harsh treatment of the body, right? In wooden idols, in emotional relationships, in wokeness, in gender inclusivity, in study, in, in, in these works, 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 education, right? No, that's all wrong. Grace upon grace is only found in Jesus Christ. All men are leveled by their utter need of the grace of Jesus Christ to overcome their deadness and their sins. All those who receive the grace of God receive it in abundance. It says grace upon grace. I think that's speaking of the abundance with which Jesus gives that grace. The Apostle John then writes in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, what does this teach us? This teaches us something that we don't often think about, and we don't often think about in the context of, oh, the, the, the happy um, theonomic post-millennialism of our day that I bump up against. This teaches us that the law was inferior to the gospel, Okay? Period. Stop. That should not be a controversial statement at all. Right? But in some circles it would be. The law was inferior to the gospel. The apostle Paul wrote, for what the law could not do, okay, there were things the law couldn't do. And things the law were never meant to do. Was never meant to do. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. And how did God do that? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering, an atonement for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so the law was weak. And it could not lead to atonement. It could only lead to condemnation. But then God says, okay, here's Jesus. His work will atone for your sins. In Hebrews 7, we read this. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a formal commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. (coughs) And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. From there, it goes on to describe Jesus as that better hope, the guarantee of a better covenant, a covenant in which the high priest is Jesus himself and not weak men who needed atonement themselves before they could atone for the people. Right? And then in Romans 4:15 we learn that the law only worked wrath. That's what the law did. It works wrath. It pronounces a curse on anything other than perfection. Right? It worked as a schoolmaster, praise God, and works as a schoolmaster pointing to Christ, but it could not justify the man. It could not justify any man. The law was glorious, right? But a far lesser glory than the gospel because, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3, it was a ministry of death. Ryle, J.C. Ryle writes, by Moses was given the law. The moral law full of high and holy demands and of stern threatenings against disobedience. The ceremonial law full of burdensome sacrifices, ordinances, and ceremonies, which never healed the worshiper's conscience. And at best were only shadows of good things to come. By Christ, on the other hand, he says, came grace and truth. Grace by the full manifestation of God's plan of salvation and the offer of complete pardon to every soul that believes on Jesus and truth by the unveiled exhibition of Christ himself as the true sacrifice, the true priest, and the true atonement for sin. Augustine, he he said, the law threatened, not helped. It commanded, not healed. It showed, not took away our feebleness. But it made ready for the physician who was to come with grace and truth, right? In other words, the gospel is stupendously good news that Jesus Christ came in the flesh to atone for sins once for all is or should be your complete joy. You should be gobsmacked by that reality, right? Um, What the law could not do, make a man righteous in God's sight, God did, God did it in Jesus Christ. And all of that treasure is just yours by faith. Just by faith. Not by works. Just faith. I believe. I believe that. I believe the word of God. Save the tone for sins removed from you as far as east as from west. Is that your joy? Is that our joy? I mean, does that wake you up in the morning? Do you get excited about walking through this veil of tears, knowing that your sins have been atoned for by the God-man, by Jesus Christ? Now, think about the Apostle John saying this he was running directly up against his Jewish brethren who would not take kindly to someone usurping Moses' position. Right? He's running directly head up against the Pharisees. If the Jews during this time were proud of anything, they were, I would say they were proud of two things uh, closely related, the temple and the law. Right? All of that could be summarized in Moses. They were enamored of Moses. John the Baptist was announcing that Jesus was greater than he. Right? And John the Apostle was announcing that Jesus was greater than Moses. And he makes a very simple argument. Grace and truth far surpass law. Calvin argues, In the law there was nothing more than a shadowy image of spiritual blessings, but that they are actually found, but now they are actually found in Jesus Christ. Not just shadowy pointers, but they're actually found, that grace is found in Jesus. And we obtain in Christ that grace, that unconditional forgiveness of sins and the renewal of the heart, which the law could not at all bestow. The law could not do that. God did in Jesus what the law was never designed to do, as hard as the Jews might have tried to make the law do so. And that is good news, right? That is good news. It's glorious news. God has made your justification possible through the the birth, life, death, and resurrection of his son. The law could never do that. Would never do that. Now third in, in In verse 18, John writes, and again, the mind gets boggled. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Now, we talked about the eternal generation of the Son when we looked at verse 14. Here, though, we learn that the the Father has been revealed to man only in Jesus Christ. The Father is revealed to mankind only through the Son, only through the Son of God. The text says, Jesus has explained the Father. The immortal, invisible God has been explained by the appearing of Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh. Ryle says, he who is in the bosom of the Father, for, and, and when it says the bosom of the Father, um, it's using language, it's an anthropomorphism, right? It's using language that we can understand. It's just talking of their, their, their union, right? Their closeness. And so um, Ryle says, He who was in the bosom of the Father from all eternity has been pleased to take our nature upon him and to exhibit it to us in the form of man all so that our minds can comprehend something of the Father's perfections. And so all of this was done as a means to showing forth God the Father, who is Spirit, showing forth his invisible perfections. It's it's um it's an accommodation to to our weakness. Jesus is an accommodation to our weakness, and and the mercy of God in that is is wonderful. If the Son of God had not become incarnate, we would be left without knowing much about the glory of his Father. Because to look Jesus, to look at Jesus, was to look at the Father. Jesus said to his apostles, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Right? They've seen the invisible God because they've looked on Jesus. Think about the incredible kindness of God in this. God's perfections, his attributes are so far above us that we, because we are creatures, will never be able to plumb the depths of them. We won't, we, we will, we will worship and study and 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 observe God through an eternity. That will be our vocation in heaven. Right? And we will not come to the end of it. Even with glorified minds, we won't come to the end of God's perfections. Right? And and, and But here, even, even, even in Jesus' coming, we're, we're wrapped up in our sins, we're distracted by our flesh, we're pulled away, our, our minds are... You know, the, the noetic effects of sin make our minds not work like they should, and our hearts have affections for what is evil. And, you know, we're in, we're, we're in this process, but we, we can't know God fully. Again, Owen takes this up in his book we're reading on mortification. I want to share that with you because it's helpful what he says here try to get the drift of what he's saying there may be some things of god which he himself has taught us to speak of and to regulate our expression of them but when we have so done we see not the things themselves we know them not in other words he's told us some ways we can talk about him and think about him but that's that's how we talk and think about him that's not the reality of him which is far beyond the description of him, right? To believe and admire is all that we can attain to. We profess as we are taught that God is infinite, omnipotent, eternal. And we know what disputes and notions there are about omnipresence, immensity, infiniteness, and eternity. We have, I say, words and notions about these things, but as to the things themselves, what do we really know? What do we comprehend of them? Can the mind of man do any more but swallow itself in an infinite abyss, which is as nothing, give itself up to what it cannot conceive, much less express? Is not our understanding brutish in the contemplation of such things as if it were not? Yea, the perfection of our understanding is not to understand and to rest there. They are but the back parts of eternity and infiniteness that we have a glimpse of. He's speaking of Moses and the rock, right? Back parts. What shall I say of the Trinity? Or of the subsistence of distinct persons in the same individual essence? A mystery by many denied because by none understood. A mystery whose every letter is mysterious. Who can declare the generation of the Son? The procession of the Spirit? Or the difference of the one from the other? But I shall not further instance in particulars, That infinite and inconceivable distance that is between him and us keeps us in the dark as to any sight of his face or clear apprehension of his perfection. We know him, this is the last sentence, we know him rather by what he does than by what he is. By his doing us good than by his essential goodness. Right? And how little a portion of him, as Job speaks, is hereby discovered. All of that to say that the infinite cannot be comprehended by the finite. What God is in and of himself, I mean, the, the scriptures lisp to us so that we can, can understand it. Right? But, but what God is in and of himself is, is immense and astonishing and incomprehensible. Owen is speaking to the unfathomable depths of the creator of all things visible and invisible. We might expect, if we were not so proud, that we would only understand a fragment of his immensity. And yet, think of the incredible presence of the Son of God in the flesh now. This was, in a sense, God using baby talk so that we might understand what he was saying, so that we might know more of him The Son's incarnation, this revealing of the character and the power of God in the flesh, is God stooping down to teach dust about himself. It is God making himself comprehensible, though not completely so, to flesh and blood. (laughs) I mean, this is astonishing, is it not? Wonderfully, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, those men who looked on Jesus physically and walked with Him and received His teaching, they wrote down for us what they had seen and felt and known. And so, through that Word that these men, inspired by the Holy Spirit, set down, we now gaze upon Jesus Christ. We gaze upon Him through this Word. We set eyes on Him and begin to know the Father because we gaze at him through this word. For this reason, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, We also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. What do we learn about God through Jesus? We learn that God is wise, that He is powerful, that He is holy, that He is angry at sin, that He's a lover of sinners. Think of the entire life of Jesus, the infinite becoming finite, limited in space, so that you might live happily in the presence of His holiness. The communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is shared with us, who who will bask in His glorious light eternally. Right? Think, Think of that. Jesus has revealed God to us. What immediately comes to mind is that we should honor Jesus Christ. Right? Are we honoring Him? Ryle says Christ is the meeting point between the Trinity and the sinner's soul. He's the meeting point between the Trinity and the sinner's soul. only way to know God is to gaze upon Christ and learn from Him. Our minds are not capable of comprehending the infinite. And God knew that. And so he sent his son so that we would have uh, a book of God written in a language we could understand. This is the compassion of God. He has made himself understandable. This is the utter love of our God. This is the proof of the astonishing fact that he is mindful that we are but creatures and our dust, and his Son willingly, happily, and perfectly submitted to the will of his Father in becoming flesh. And so we look to Jesus in the pages of inspired Scripture so that we might come to know God in all his fullness. Now, when we stoop to consider that Jesus not only explains the Father to us, but that he died for us. Ungrateful sinners the mind begins to boggle, right? The love of our triune God is fully displayed in His Son, especially as He hung from a tree, thirsted, was forsaken by His Father, His blood dripping on the ground, bearing the sins of the world, you know, and, 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 and John crying out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the light of God burst forth in the birth of Jesus so many years ago. You who have known that light should continually honor honor Jesus by your praise, by your witness, by your obedience, by your thanksgiving, by your joy. You shouldn't let another day go by without giving Christ the honor he deserves. Right? Without him, you would have no knowledge of the triune God and you would be dead in your sins, only living life as a way to be fattened up for the slaughter. And he's rescued you from that. Instead, you're going to know eternal peace, joy, comfort, and Sabbath rest. Right? Because of what he did, the... the The amazing distance that He came down in order that we might know His Father and honor Him. Atoning for our sins in the midst of all that glorious work as well.